What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and welcome to another episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. And just a reminder, if you want to see our faces, you can catch this episode on video as well on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so check that out. And joining me today is my fellow student in all things 80s. Actually, a professor. Professor John Hughes, the Honorable Dr. Hughes, if you will. Hello. Hi. I just got off my uh, afternoon shift at WBWC uh, Radio. I'm heading uh, to my late night shift at WOBC Oberlin College Radio after this. Uh, and we're going to be playing some uh, REM and a little bit of U2 and some Neutral Milk Hotel. Well, I hope you studied up for today, John, because everything we discuss will be on the test. Uh, college rock. <laughs> yes, today, today, in case anyone hasn't already figured out what we're going to be talking about, we will be lecturing you on probably the only genre to be named after its fans' level of education, college rock. Yes. It's going to be a crash course in all things college rock. But, of course, we needed an adjunct professor to join the lecture today, someone with practically a degree in the subject. Our special returning guest today is an award-winning journalist, editor, and critic whose profiles, interviews, and criticism have appeared in publications like Rolling Stone, NPR Music, The Guardian, Salon, Billboard, Stereo Gum, The AV Club, which is a kind of a college reference right there, yeah. and more. Fans of the show actually will remember her because she wrote the book, which should be the subject of a college course on Duran Duran, the 33 and a third book series installment about Rio that was released this past May. She's also uniquely qualified for today's topic as she wrote the liner notes for the 2016 deluxe edition of REM's out of time and contributed an essay to the 2020 game theory compilation across the barrier of sound postscript. And that's why she is back today to talk with us about all things college rock of the 80s. We are helping to welcome back to the show, Professor Annie Zaleski. Nice seeing everyone. I hope you did the reading for the test today. <laughs> I have the syllabus in front of me now. Everybody, everybody listening, please save your questions till later, but be <laughs> sure to take notes because this will be on the test. So first things first, I think uh, I may already have the answer to this based on the little intro that uh, Professor John Hughes was saying at the beginning. Uh, but did we all DJ at college radio stations? Do we all have actual college radio practical experience here? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so... Like tell I ha I do as well, but before I tell you about my experience, where did you guys DJ out and at what college? What was it like? All right. So I DJed at WHRB in Cambridge, which was actually Harvard's college radio station. And Damn. 
I did. It was, and honestly though, so they had all sorts of different genres. Like during the day they did classical and blues and stuff, but at night from like 10 a.m. to 5 p or, or 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. they had all the cool stuff. So it was called the Record Hospital. And so it was basically punk, hardcore noise, synth pop, like weirdo stuff. That's and a great title, the Record Police? Hospital. That would be a good name for a band, actually. A college Absolutely. rock radio band. Absolutely. And so it was awesome. And so I know one year I had the 3.30 a.m. to 5 a.m. shift on a Monday night, which was oh, wow. awesome. I just played whatever I wanted because no one was listening. Um, mm. But it was great. And like we had a crash course, like before you had to become a DJ, they taught you like they had like a literal curriculum of here's like the grounding and all sorts of different genres and stuff. And so it was awesome. I'm like, that was my favorite thing I did in college. That's awesome. What about you, John? You, were those call letters you were calling out? Did you really do? Were you really doing like a uh, moonlighting at two stations? I was. I, wow. I uh, Oberlin College was cool because uh, they let the community be DJs. You didn't have to be a student. You had to apply and you had to go to a class and you had to write like a paper about what your show was going to be about, what genres you would cover and why it was culturally significant. And I did this. Four times, got rejected four times. <gasps> and then I finally got accepted. And then I went off and joined the army like a month into my show. <laughs> Were you like an army DJ, like uh, Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam? I absolutely was. I was a broadcast journalist. A 46 Romeo is the uh, wow. military occupational specialty. Uh, and you learn to do radio. You do uh, TV and you host a radio show. In, in my case, I had Morning Drive in Tungduchan, South Korea. From six a.m. to ten a.m. Wow. Yep. My my guess is you didn't get to play a lot of game theory during that shift, or maybe you did. You'd be surprised. Uh, it was like a free form format. You got to pick your own music, but you had to play what the armed forces uh, radio service sent you. Mm. And send you everything just about. There would be these compilation discs with a whole mm -hmm. bunch of stuff. So you know the poor people at camp Casey, South Korea had to wake up to things like uh, things that make you say, Hmm, by CNC music factory right next to drive by REM. I didn't care. Actually, you know what? That sounds like a station I would want to listen to. Yeah. I think that's oh, that's cool. It kind of sounds like everybody's Spotify shuffle now because nobody, yeah. few people listen to one thing. I was a, a DJ at KLA, which was UCLA's radio station. You know, I, I, I uh, grew up in Los Angeles and went to college in Los Angeles. You would have thought it would have been a big station because we're talking Los Angeles and obviously a big media city. We didn't have a transmitter. <laughs> we didn't, the big college radio stations here in Los Angeles are KXOU, which is out of Loyola Marymount, and KCRW, which is out of San Monica City College, which is kind of just on the campus, but it's not really a pro, like a traditional college station. You would think that UCLA... Had, would have uh, its own major station, but at KLA was, you know, absolutely the last priority on the Dean's list, which actually kind of made it even more punk rock. Like nobody cares about our station, which of course, A, meant we could play absolutely whatever we wanted. There were ways to listen to it. It was piped into all the dorms. It was piped into like all the communal areas, like the cafeterias and commissaries and stuff. If you, this, this makes me sound so old. There was a thing called cable radio. You, we had it on the bases. It was all cable radio. Wow. You had to go to Radio Shack or someplace like that and buy a splitter mm -hmm. and you could connect whatever mm -hmm. connects your cable uh, box to your TV at the time. That's how it worked then. You could connect it to your radio and then you could actually hear it. And we said that every day. We'd be like, and you can get it here. You know? And um, there's, I think, one person that did that, which was my mom. 
So Aww. she could listen to me, which was which was very nice of her. She she did that. So pretty much no one listened. The real case important we knew when I actually, since we're gonna talk a lot about REM, was when we were giving away tickets to see REM in concert and no one called. I'm like, <laughs> that was the awesome thing though, I have to say though, is that we got all these tickets like nine inch nails and Iggy Pop at REM that the record labels would give us or other kind of swag to give away t-shirts, records, box sets. And then we'd be like, be the first caller. No <laughs> one's calling. All right. Tickets. You know, I got so much free stuff because of that, but I really did enjoy doing it. And the thing is I started off doing a regular just shift, but then I did a bunch of specialty shows, but that brings it back. So we all had this college experience. And I think when we went to college, I, you know, there are people who go to college and their, their dream is to join a fraternity or a sorority or be on the football team or have those kind of college experiences. And like my dream was I could not wait to go to college so I could have my own like college WKRP in Cincinnati mm -hmm. experience. So like, did you feel like that's where you found your like-minded friends and stuff on campus? Cause that's what it was for me for sure. Yeah. I mean, honestly like that, I did like the school newspaper for the first year but that was literally the only activity I did. Like all I did was radio station. And I do, I have friends that I made there that I still talk to to this day mm -hmm. that I bought and, you know, people that I kept in touch with afterward. And it's weird because we all had really different musical tastes. So like, even though it was kind of this alternative show, you know, you had the people who were into the super harsh noise and you had people that were all hardcore. And mine, I actually played a lot of weirdo new wave. Like I played a lot of like the faint was big. So I played a lot of the faint and like early simple minds and the cool post-punk. So that mm. was like my thing. And, but it was, but everyone there was like really open-minded and everyone had their own style and was really enthusiastic. They were, in, they were really curious music listeners. And I think that's why I got along with everyone. Cause yeah, that's literally the only thing I wanted to do. It was going off to school. I wanted to do radio. And so I did. I think it was a little more intense for me when, ever since I was five years old, I wanted to do two things in my life. I wanted to draw comic books and I wanted to be a radio DJ. Oh. <laughs> did did you do the other one? I yeah, I've drawn a little here and there. I didn't get I didn't get published, but okay, fine. Uh, but yeah, uh, so that was the goal to go to college was you know oh the degree whatever. I want to get on the radio, and it was uh, it was everything I had hoped for and more. And um, you know I was going through my it was late eighties, so eighty seven eighty eight. And I was going through my really intense wax tracks phase. So my show was a lot of uh, early. Yeah, there you go. My show. I got my wax tracks t-shirt on for you today, Professor John. A lot of my show was early ministry, KMFDM. It was, it was, that's, that's mm. how I got an OBC. I, I focused and said, I want to do an industrial music show. And, you know, cause before then I was like, oh, I'm just going to play my favorite artists, you know, and that, that's not what they were looking for. So to have a focus like that got me on. And then I, Right. Then I left. <laughs> no. Oh, well, then you educated the, the armed forces with your wax tracks and there knowledge. No wax tracks on the armed forces radio uh, network, unfortunately. Shame. I feel fun. like industrial music would have worked well with the art, with army <laughs> life. It would today, you know, with the call of duty generation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this brings me to an interesting point because I made the joke earlier that this is the only genre that's named after the level of education that its listeners aspire to or whatever. But like, it's a hard genre to define because we just, the bands, we've just talked about Wax Tracks and R.E.M., you know, in the same breath. It's like, it kind of was the, the umbrella term that people used as the term for alternative before that was a term in the eighties people, the word alternative did not exist. People did not use that to describe bands like the cure or the Smiths or the pixies college rock 
was basically sh uh, shorthand for stuff the real radio stations, ones with transmitters, will not play. Am I right? It was pretty, it was pretty much a catch-all. It was, indeed. So no, what was, I, like, the through line, basically? I mean, I think it was the music that, like, a, a lot of the bands that you see, like, didn't want to do what was going on in the mainstream. And I think that they kind of looked at some of the mainstream, like the AOR and the big arena bands and some of the like glossier synth pop bands. And they were like, I'm going to do the exact opposite of that. And they were, I think also just sort of, you know, they were kind of operating also on like the indie circuit, both touring and on labels too. So a lot of them, I think didn't have the sort of the resources to kind of, you know, even get on some of those radio stations. And so I think that was sort of also a through line that they were just trying to do their own thing and do something original and push music forward rather than, you know, continuing the status quo. Yeah, you had labels that specialized in this uh, genre, for lack of a better term, IRS records, uh, Sire records, big time records that just specialized in this kind of uh, narrow focus of this market. And they were pretty successful. You know, some every once in a while, someone would break through to the uh, with to mm -hmm. the main song that just couldn't be denied. Uh, I remember REM, you know, Radio Free Europe obviously got them going on college radio and murmur. And then they, you know, people would disagree, but I think they kind of kept that same level with the second record. Mm -hmm. But then that third record, Fables, they they took a stab at top 40 with Can't Get There From Here. I remember how that was a big deal that, wow. oh, oh, R.E.M.'s. Well, let's. Michael Stipe got the lyrics on the video. Yeah. You know, he's actually saying what yeah. he's saying. It was I a big deal. And I actually remember with the one I love, which was their even before Green or certainly before Out of Time was like their first big hit. It was actually, I think sometimes people forget that the one I love was actually a legit top 10 hit. It like in on the Billboard Hot 100. I believe that was a time when the the long time, you know, since day one's REM's fans were like, he's enunciating because that was like kind of his thing before was Stipe, who actually has a quite crystalline voice now when you think about like the big hits. But like. He was known, I mean, they had a record called Murmur, I guess, could have been called, you know, Mumble. Like, he was yeah. known for not enunciating. That's why when you say, John, that the lyrics, the karaoke-style subtitles on the Can't Get Here video was, like, kind of a big deal. But let's just get into a real, since obviously, uh, Annie, you uh, wrote the liner notes for that REM record, and we're talking about REM. Like, is it fair to say they are, like, the poster boys for college rock? Like, they're, like, the archetypal number one genre uh, representative of the 80s college rock era? I, I completely, absolutely. I mean, when you look at, you know, record between record sales and how they grew within that system, like 100%. I mean, what's so interesting in hindsight is, you know, I think a lot of times people think, oh, college rock, they're kind of cult acts. They didn't sell a lot of records. REM mm -hmm. sold a lot of records, like even like, yeah, they did. you know, like I think Murmur sold like 300,000 copies, which is like, you know, for like now, of course, would be like amazing. But even for like a smaller band, that was insane. And I mean, you know, and, and they got commercial play too. even you know, even though they were on college radio stations, some of the commercial stations, they basically kind of forced their hand to play them. I mean, it was funny is that document was actually on IRS. That was before they yeah. signed to a major label. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and that sounds like a major label record, but like they basically kind of showed, hey, you know, college rock, even though you might think it's this one thing, we kind of can create our own system and create our own system of growth and grow within the system to and do our own thing, you know, not, you know, basically follow our muse into these weird areas, you know, Fables is a weird record. I love that record, but it is murky. They work with Joe Boyd and it's just like, this like 
hazy sounding record. It's very strange, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And to follow it up with Life's Rich Pageant, which is even more of a stab, I think, towards the mainstream. Fall on me, their mm-hmm. first, you know, their second actually uh, Hot 100 hit. I think, uh, I think Radio for Europe got to like 83 or something. Okay, uh, but uh, it, it's a love song ish. <laughs> and you can understand the words. It's an yeah, it. I do also want to point, since we're talking about, I did mention the one I love. There's a, a amusing number of people who don't really listen to the lyrics of that. There are people who are like dedicating that song to their girlfriend or boyfriend. It's their wedding song. It's their prom song. And I'm like, after the, this one goes out to the one I love, like immediately after that, the rest of the album, the song takes a dark turn. This is not a song you want to dedicate to someone you're still in love with. But our first dance is to a simple prop. <laughs> Occupy my time. It's Come like with me prop. It's like every breath you take where people like really miss it. It's one of the great misinterpreted songs. But I do want to, since we're talking about the fact that um, R.E.M. got so big, you know, a lot of people, when they think about the alternative revolution, using that specific term alternative, which really wasn't a term until the early 90s, people instantly think of Nirvana. They think of a band that started on a smaller label, Sub Pop, signed to a major, became the biggest band in the world, we're on MTV all the time. We're winning VMAs. We're became, you know, became this unlikely stadium rock band while not compromising what they did artistically. But, you know, not trying to like pit the two against each other or anything, but like REM did that first. They were like the first mm-hmm. band. Everything I just said, REM did that. Again, I don't think, I don't know if even they saw that coming. I mean, you you guys might know better if that was like a, they wanted to be big pop stars. I certainly didn't see that coming. I discovered them on IRS is the cutting edge. And if you told me one day this band is going to be playing, you know, the forum and it's going to be sold out and they're going to be all over MTV and they're, you know, I would not have believed you to be honest. I think Annie can speak to this, but I know for a fact that Kurt Cobain worshiped REM and used their career path as a guide. Mm. He did because, you know, REM always kept their integrity. And I think that's the one thing that they always, always talked about is, you know, I think built into their contracts was they had creative control. You know, it was never one of those things where they signed a contract and, you know, they had an A&R guy saying, oh, I don't hear a single, you know, they could do whatever Mm. they want. And I know that was very important to Kurt. And they basically, and and they kind of, they almost in a pot like Nirvana, kind of bent the mainstream to their will, you know, a you know, Green had Stand and they're doing this like weird 60s Bawa song. You know, <laughs> With Jane from Sassy. Don't forget Jane from Sassy was dancing in that video. Exactly. And like, okay, you know, and that became a hit, but it was sort of, this is completely unlikely. But they were just kind of following their muse and doing what they wanted to do. And they said, you know, this is what we're doing on our, you know, career. We have different things that we'll compromise on, different things that we won't. And so they basically decided this is how we're going to kind of operate. And I know Kurt found that enormously, you know, enormously influential. And because Nirvana got so huge so fast, he was able to kind of talk to Michael Stipe and just be like, Mm. oh, my God, how do I deal with this? Because R.E.M. got so huge, too. And I don't think they courted fame necessarily. And I mean, you talk to even Peter Buck now, and he is the most low key rock star you will ever meet. He's just kind of like, you know, whatever, you know, he's just very, you know, stardom doesn't mean anything to him. So I think that that there's a lot of that element too, that they're just kind of like, okay, this is cool. This has happened, but you know, we're, we don't need to get, we don't need to reunite and get back together and like, you know, do all this stuff again. 
Well, there are a couple. I also, unlike Nirvana, who were massive by album number two, it took, you know, REM yeah. had a little more time to ramp up to that. They had each album was more successful than the last, but, yeah. you know, it wasn't overnight. It was a big deal when they, not when they signed Warner Brothers, but then I guess it was probably after Out of Time, after Losing My Religion and all that. They signed for at the time what was like a record amount of money. And it was, I remember, and I know we're getting into the 90s here, but I think so much of the 80s college rock set the scene and the tone and laid the groundwork and opened the doors for what happened in the 90s. When they, you know, this band that was representing college rock of the 80s transitioned to the 90s, got even bigger than they were before, and then signed this like record breaking deal with Warner. It was kind of like they were looked at as like the godfathers of alternative who had sort of like, made it possible for the Nirvanas and all those other artists to um, be, you know, as big as, you know, CNC Music Factory or whatever, to be pop stars, basically. Well, and I think that even in the 80s, I think, you know, REM, I don't think there's any way that the replacements and Husker Du would have gotten record deals without REM. You mm -hmm. know, when you think about, you know, saying, oh, yeah, the replacements on a major label. It's like, you know, you know what? You know, they really, you know, that showed kind of the possibility that, hey, you know, they also showed a lot of bands then that, you know, you can still be weird and you can kind of still do your own kind of quirky thing. And there maybe is a place for you on a label. And obviously those bands, you know, that, that did not work out. You know, they, they signed to labels and then it just, it was a little bit more tumultuous, I guess, to say the least. Um, but yeah, they really showed that like you could do this, but you could also become successful. And then, you know, I, they signed that big record deal in the nineties, REM did. And then like, I think that was, I think it was before New Adventures and High Fire, just after, and then from there on in, it was they never reached those heights again. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Warner Brothers must have been like, um, shit. Or sorry. Yeah. Oh, you know, they must. I mean, I don't know actually if they, but they, yeah, I mean, yeah, Don's holding his tongue, but you know, just the sort of like, I, it, I, I remember thinking of it as sort of like, I will take the money and run, REM, you know, good for you. But I do want to talk about another band. Uh, I definitely want to get to the replacements and, and who's screwed but there's another band that so clearly was a direct line to Nirvana to use Nirvana as the, mm -hmm. you know, the template of like the band that broke things open in the nineties for their successors in terms of the Sonics, maybe not in terms of modeling the career path, but in terms of the Sonics that got to a certain level and are certainly super revered now, but never got to an REM level. And that is the Pixies. I yeah. think the Pixies are the other ultimate eighties, college rock band and um you know the the hard soft loud soft dynamic thing that i mean i think pretty much kurt cobain would say that too in fact there's i've heard people argue that the most influential band of the entire 80s was the pixies because every 90s rock band took from them i would say that that's probably a fair statement and and i remember surfer rosa i i read about it i never heard it i saw the cover what and i thought oh I, i'm not going to be you know it was very 4ad ish looking is that the boob cover no i believe surfer rosa is it, is it the guy with the hairy back on the back am i thinking the right one uh, surfer rosa is the boobs the boobs okay i knew i just remember it's very 4ad <laughs> yeah presentation it was like and, a rock band yeah it the the music did not sound like the cover in my mm. then i heard gigantic i was like oh this is a pop song okay this is cool i like this and uh, it took me a while, uh, you know, of course, then here comes your man comes out and just blows everything up. Uh, people forget that was in heavy rotation on MTV, regular rotation. And it was a video where they don't lip sync. They like purposely didn't lip sync. It just opened their mouths. You know, that was there was an era then 
of the college rock where like these bands were making videos, but they were like, you know, sticking their metal finger up to MTV at the same time. There was REM's It's the End of the World as we know it, which of course was the college rock. We didn't start the fire, but that we all know that. But <laughs> it's the end of we, you know, I don't, they're not in it. It's just like a kid wrecking his room. Uh, Bastards of Young by replacements. replacements again. That first of all, they wouldn't make videos, and then when they did, it was a close up of a speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the Smiths that was Morrissey's yeah. manifesto at first. Two things the Smiths will never do, quote unquote, uh, have synthesizers on a record or make a music video. Both happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People, you know, I, people change their minds. We're allowed to evolve. But the Pixies video for Here Comes Your Man, it was just like their yeah. distorted heads. And when it was their time to sing, they would just like open their mouth. Like, I even yeah. remember when Red Hot Chili Peppers, who, you know, they got so big, it's hard to remember that they were a college rock band at one time. They were totally deemed that up until Mother's Milk. That's what they were. And when Mother's Milk broke, and they broke with the cover of a uh, higher ground by uh, Stevie wonder. They went on either the grind or club MTV, whatever, like the ver MTV's version of American bandstand was wubba, 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 Julie Brown, all that. And they had to lip sync and they really didn't like to lip sync. Cause you know, obviously they're great musicians and stuff. And they thought it was just kind of lame. So, but that's how those shows American bandstand solid gold top of the pops. That's how they just work it, logistically that you have to lip sync. So they said, oh, if we're going to lip sync, we're not actually going to even pretend. And they like threw their instruments down and were just like climbing on the scaffolding and like just making it like really obvious they were miming along just to sort of keep that college rock cred. So there was sort of like, I don't know, maybe a resistance. These bands were going from being played only on college rock radio to being played on MTV and not just on 120 minutes of MTV, but proper MTV. They were starting to have chart hits, but they still seemed to struggle with that a little bit or still want to kind of like prove that they hadn't sold out. The people still cared about selling out back then, which is kind of a quaint notion now, to be honest. Yeah. And it, it's funny because then when REM, they were on Letterman and Michael Stipe insisted on singing live, which was like unheard of. Like that mm. was, that was the big thing. What people, even to this day, you know, Oh, he insisted on singing live, but yeah, there was like, and you know, we, I think that's why in the eighties there's so many great like live TV performances. Like you have like the beastie boys, was that on Joan Rivers where <laughs> they're just like completely like out of their heads. Like there was that, like, you know, they they were trying to navigate, okay, how do we be in the mainstream and we have all this attention now, but yet we're still, how do we still keep our cred? Like that was a big struggle. And that whole, like you would never do a commercial that was selling out, you know, that would be like, or, you know, doing different commercial radio things, totally selling out. There was that weird, like internal struggle that was very, very obvious. And I think you even read interviews from that time too. And you hear a lot of the bands. I mean, I guess the replacements too, when they were on the Petty Tour, I think there was a lot of self-sabotage going on when, you know, they got that huge potential deal to like, you know, break out, opening for Petty and the Heartbreakers. Seems like a lot of sense. And I think there was, you know, they basically just could not handle that. The replacements they on SNL. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yep. A flame out on live television uh, and being banned forever. Paul. Yeah. Paul was invited back later, uh, but solo. And to your point, there was no outlet for these bands on television outside of niche cable shows. So sometimes you had really weird things happening. Uh, Nine Inch Nails on Dance Party USA, lip syncing to Down In It, 
the ocean blue on the grind. You know, the ocean blue on the grind. The grind <laughs> like the kids dance to them. Dancing to between something and nothing, like it's the the. No. Yeah. Oh, I'll send you guys. It's the. Oh, best. excellent! Oh my god. Uh, it, 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 I I believe does Eric Nyes introduce them? <laughs> I need to. He probably because he has no idea who they are. You know, like, I think I, I think it's actually downtown Julie Brown that I'm thinking about. She but, might have known who they were. Yeah. Remember, R.E.M.'s first nationwide television appearance was on a Nickelodeon show called Livewire. Which I watched. That was like my favorite I'm, show. I'm writing all of these down to yeah. create my YouTube, you know, playlist later. That's pretty amazing. So these pla these places, uh, U2 on Tom Snyder, Tomorrow Show, their first appearance. I think we need to talk about U2 a little bit because they get kind of forgotten. They were probably before R.E.M. the first college rock band i'm using air quotes here because that's the only place they got uh aor wouldn't touch them when boy came out at first except for a few outlets um and it was really they're they're so overexposed but yesterday yeah. i just happened to hear gloria and i was like yeah that's an amazing song i need to go back and listen to some classic rem and i found myself in or rem a classic u2 song and i found myself in a u2 k-hole for a little bit going through uh some of their stuff and i think people forget about poor u2 how poor you too yeah how i know poor you no but gloria is actually my favorite song by yeah. by them and yeah i i don't i guess they were a college rock band but i definitely I, never, I don't know if I ever use that term to describe them, although you're totally right now that you say it. I realize you're right. But, like, I definitely used to point out people, they were considered, like, a new wave band. You know, they had the new wave haircuts, the new wave look. They had the kind of angular, urgent guitars, you know, like Two Hearts Beat as One, you know, New Year's Day. They were angsty sounding. They didn't really kind of have, like, their Jesus complex yet, you know, uh, their Messiah complex or whatever, you know, that came later with, you know, particularly with the Joshua Tree or uh, rattle and hum and yeah they were on you know i would see them on mtv uh next to you know new order or something and it seemed that was where they needed that was right that was proper sequencing and people do forget because i mean they got so big they make nirvana or rem look like small what was your first youtube exposure annie oh, man so it's funny because i it was I feel like it was probably Octoon Baby, but really? I very quickly, because like all of the singles, but I very quickly, like my dad actually had War, like he really likes you too. So he had a tape of War and the Joshua Tree. And then out of my library, I got out October and Boy. So yeah. like I have this, like, I think I have a tape from high school where there, I think Velvet Underground and Nico's on one side and Boy's on the other. So like you that had, was all great high school. You had a great high school. Yeah. So like basically I was like, I pretty much came to all U2 almost at the same time. But like wow. October is my favorite U2 record. I mm -hmm. like I listened to that record and like the baselines on that, like all their early stuff. I'm like, these guys love Joy Division. And like yep. you listen to that, they were total post punks. And so like it 100%. makes total sense to me why they would be on college radio. Cause like they could have if they had kept in that lane, they could have been like the coolest dance punk band. You know, they I, obviously I'm, like, I'm sure they don't have too many regrets. <laughs> but, yeah, you're right. A song like a celebration. Oh yeah. Exactly what that is. There's even a bass solo in uh <laughs> uh uh, uh two, stranger, two yeah, stranger yeah. in a strange life. Well, the Francois right. Kevorkian mix of two hearts beat as well. Oh my, the best. You know, they kind of just they disown that song, and I don't understand why they won't they won't play it live, they don't put it on any compilations. I don't get it. But I think a lot of people um a little older than you, me, uh 
their first real big exposure was, of course, New Year's Day on MTV. Mm-hmm. But that Under a Blood Red Sky EP mm-hmm. was so huge. That's where they kind of had that first little uh, open crack in the door of the mainstream and were looking inside because that video for New Year's Day and Sunday Bloody Sunday that from Red Rocks. Yeah, from Red Rocks. That's they, when you saw them in their the first time you saw them in stadium. Bon, the Bono we think of now was the Red Rocks video for Sunday Bloody Sunday. On a loop. I mean, after a while, I was like, okay, enough with the Sunday Bloody <laughs> Sunday. I got it. I learned about, I mean, that was an educational song though, too. Like I didn't know about the, the historical events of that song until you too taught me about it. Did so you see, know? it was, it was college rock. It was educational. Did you know it was not the rebel song? No. <laughs> the song is not until, the rebel song. Until Bono told me at Red Rock. Exactly. I, I am curious though, since we all came from college radio. So how stri- strict was it with these college radio stations when a band became huge because my first job ever in the music business was an internship at college, a college radio internship at Capitol mm-hmm. records. And it was uh, when the Woodface album by crowded house was coming out. So here I am a teenager in this boiler room. I was very excited to be at Capitol records just cause like it, I got to go to the building and fun fact, if you're in the Capitol records building and you go, where was the bathroom kitchen Xerox machine elevator? The answer is always the same. Just keep walking in either direction. You'll eventually see it. It's really a round building. It was really exciting to be there. But there we were, and we're making calls. Uh, Chocolate Cake was the single mm-hmm. for Crowded House. And even though Crowded horrible, House. Horrible choice for a first single for that record, by the wasn't way. wasn't my choice. It was but my pay grade. I was an unpaid college radio intern. Take it, take it up with the people at Capitol. But I was doing my job, which was to promote that song to college radio. Um, because even though obviously they'd had a massive hit with the album before, with, which had uh, something so strong, and of course, Don't Dream It's Over on it, here we were, it was like, I guess, 1990, and this album was not necessarily connecting at commercial radio the way those songs had, especially Don't Dream It's Over. So they were they were like, we're going to college radio. This is a band with a pedigree. You know, they they're, they're, uh, their history dates back to Split Ends, one of the original, you know, archetypal, iconic, new wave bands, one of the first bands ever on MTV. So, you know, the 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 cred is there, is what I'm trying to say. So here I am making all these calls to, you know, talking to people that were probably not much older than me, other teenagers, college students, saying, you know, hey, new single, chocolate cake by Crowded House. And they were laughing at me because they were like, Crowded House? We're not playing Crowded House. Crowded House are big. Crowded House are popular. The Crowded House have had top 10 hits. We, you know, they, they were very purist about it. And I do remember when I was, you know, uh, at college radio, you know, we would play a band when they were kind of early on, but once they had, uh, they had crossed over at star game played heavily on MTV or on K rock, which was the major call a uh, major alternative rock radio station in LA commercial station, or God forbid pop radio kiss FM out here. When that happened, the record either got taken out of rotation at KLA for all three of those people, one of which was my mom to hear in the cafeteria, or it at least got, you know, downgraded to lower rotation. It was definitely like, we aren't going, you know, so I can only imagine in the eighties did these, once these bands got big, were they going to play you two? Were they going to play REM? Were they even going to play the Pixies or the replacements who had signed the major labels and it had some modest success? Like, I know KXLU here, KXLU, which is the college radio station out here in LA. They're very strict about playing anything that even has a whiff of commercial appeal. 
So what do you remember from that time? Especially you, John, because you were doing it in the, the 80s. They were so uh, overly precious that I don't even think it was a problem. I don't even think it, it, it reared its head. I think it was for as free form and as independent and be yourself and buck the trends. It was very conformist. The whole thing well, to the opposite end is, oh, you brought in Smashing Pumpkins gish. Ew, what's wrong with you? You, know, <laughs> you would never do that because you don't want to be uh, ridiculed by your peers. Luckily, I was doing industrial wax track stuff, so there was no way that was going to cross <laughs> yeah. over. So I was Ministry did. Ministry were popular on 120 yeah. Minutes and MTV. Yeah, but you know, I can't say that uh, So What is going to be played on Kiss FM anytime soon. Well, we all know that the best ministry album was with Sympathy. This is uh, a fact. Yes. Not an argument. <laughs> I didn't expect either of you. I didn't expect either of you to debate me on that one. This ain't debate class. This is a fact. Yes. All right. Well, obviously, there's way too much to study for this episode. We're going to have to stay after class. So we're going to have to get together for part two. Annie, can you come back and join us? I will. I think I can do it. I'll cram. I'll cram and I'll, I'll, I'll do it. You'll this be will. a study group leader. I will. Okay. This will be on the test. Thank you. I've been Professor Lindsay Parker. I've been joined today by Dr. John Hughes. We want to thank you for listening. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform, and we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s, and please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side.